All right, all right. Welcome to it. It's uh, John Scholes here, Stan Feinzelberg, courtesy San Firu to Mark and LLP is also in attendance doing all the heavy lifting and answering of questions. Help at employmentlawyer.ca is uh, the way you email in, and we're going to get to a ton of email today. We're going to focus on that because it's piling up, right? But we always first get to the uh, the thought of the day, the case of the day with, uh, with Stan. What's going on, pal? Hey, good morning, John. Good morning, listeners. Uh, so for the thought of the day, what I wanted to talk about was something I've seen all pretty much all week in the news, and that's the, the news around Elon Musk uh, forcing employees back to work. And what does that really mean in the employment law context, John? So, you know, the first thing I would just you know, point out is that we're obviously talking about completely different countries, different legal climates. What can be done in the United States cannot necessarily be done here. That being said, you know, the pandemic was obviously and hopefully a one-time <laughs> event that forced every employers to make their employees work remotely. I mean, there was just no option. So it wasn't in the strict sense each an agreement that was made so much as conditions that were imposed uh, on, the, on the workplace. And the general rule, John, is that an employer really always can dictate where you, you work. Uh, and if if after several you know months they've decided that they want to bring their workforce back, as you know Tesla is talking about, there's not much employees can necessarily do. Now, the one thing I will say though is that you know that's an interesting question that comes up here is how long can they really allow employees to work from home before it becomes you know a new term of employment essentially? It, at the beginning of the pandemic, it, you know, there's no question it was it was forced based on circumstances. Well, it's about two years later now, and a lot of companies have allowed employees to go back to the office or force employees back to the office you know, if, over a year ago in some cases. Mm-hmm. So at one point, at some point, I would argue that if you're going to keep your employees at home for two years, three years, at some point, it's going to become a term of their employment contract. And... If you force them back at that time, that can amount to a constructive dismissal. So really interesting story coming out of the States, and uh, we'll see how that plays out. Now, it's a, uh, it's a bit of a different animal down there, of course, with employment at will. I mean, they, the, the employees generally don't have nearly the robust employment law rights that, that employees up here do, correct? Absolutely. Absolutely, John. Uh, there is a, as you noted, employment at will is the, the standard for most states. Uh, what yeah. that means is pretty much exactly what it sounds with. They have, you're employed at the will of the employer. And if they choose to no longer employ you, then they can do so. And they actually owe you nothing. They don't have those safety nets that we have built into our legislation to ensure that, you know, if an employee is terminated, they have something coming to them in, in the form of severance to get them over this difficult time. There are no dumb questions, so bring them on. Stan is ready to uh, get busy and answer those. But as uh, as promised off the top, we'll get to a ton of email. That is help at employmentlawyer.ca. Robert, first one up, says, hey, Stan, I was terminated after 12 years of service. It was a technical role, and I'm in my 40s. I was offered 25 weeks severance. Is that fair? So, Robert, I mean, it doesn't sound fair, but the first, uh, the starting point to determine whether it actually is, is to frankly ask you if you have an employment contract and if you have a, a termination clause that limits how much you're owed. Because if it does limit how much you're owed, this certainly is more than your minimums. Uh, and 
it may be generous in the context of your particular situation. If you don't have an employment contract or if you have one and it has an unenforceable termination clause, like 95% of contracts in Ontario, uh, then that's not a particularly good deal for you, Robert. You know, mm-hmm. the, the general rule of thumb, an easy way for listeners to kind of gauge their entitlements, it is to take about a month per year of service. And then, you know, it goes up or down based on seniority, age, you know, house, uh, the position, those factors. So 25 weeks definitely seems light, Robert. And, you know, if that's all they're offering you, I would suggest you call our office and have a discussion with a lawyer to see what we can do for you. Robert, the number to do so, get a hold of Stan and his team. Simple, right? one 821 5900 Again, one 821 5900 and help at employmentlawyer.ca. Bob, Bob is up next, says, guys, my employer gave me a month of working notice. I have an interview in Halliburton, and she denied my request for time off for an interview. Is that allowed? Yeah, well, that's a that's a very strange situation because really, when we think about it, John, the purpose of working notice is to actually allow people to know that their job is ending so that they can go and find the next one. Mm-hmm. And that's why I would say that your employer actually has to give you that time off to go for that interview. Uh, otherwise, I, you know, it defeats the purpose of the working notice. And I, I think what would happen from a legal perspective is a judge would just look at that and say, we're not going to give you too much credit for that working notice because you didn't let the person go actually try to find a new job. And that is the purpose of notice after all. Uh, so working, and, and this is pretty clear in the case law as well, John, that working notice is not the same, is not count, counted with the same weight as payments in lieu of notice. So if somebody can get a working notice period and actually get more than their entitlements in some instances, because judges recognize that if you're working full-time, it's going to be more difficult for you to go out and try to find a new job, especially if your employer is denying your request to go and interview for one. I guess that's what the employer's argument would be. You know, you're on working notice, yes, but you're still on my clock, so you need to be here working for the remainder of your time. I guess that would be her argument, right? Yeah, and I mean, I guess, you know, we can talk about it as well contextually. I can see scenarios in which an employer can actually say, no, you know, we need you here today, so it can't be today. That could be justifiable. But again, I mean, you're not expected to get paid for going to the interview. So you're not on the clock necessarily. Uh, And, you know, if the employer chooses to give you working notice, this comes with the package. You've got to, you know, understand the purpose of it. It's not to help the company necessarily, it's to help the employee, to give them certainty, to give them the time to find that next job, and that includes giving them the ability to actually do that. Again, that email address that we are using, help at employmentlawyer.ca, but to call into the show, you got lots of time, 416-870-6400. Moving down to, uh, who we got next? We got James uh, chiming in. James says, I've been off for a week with a cold. I told my employer yesterday that I feel good enough to return next week, and they told me that I would have to get a COVID or get COVID testing showing I was negative, or they could not let me come back to work. Do I have to go for that COVID test? Yeah, uh, with COVID testing, it certainly seems to be playing out more and more that the courts are taking the position that that is a reasonable condition to impose in the context of everything that's happening around us. And so if your company is saying that, you know, if if they think you had COVID or, you know, they don't want you showing up in the workplace and you got to go prove you have a negative test before attending, 
I think a court would likely be okay with that in this in this particular context. And with that, uh, James, we hope that that answered your question. That that may have been a different scenario six months ago, but now you can see why he's asking that question. We'll get to that more of it. Employment Law Show on the way. Today, taking all the calls, answering the questions uh, in that regard, help at employmentlawyer.ca is the email address. We're kind of working our way through as we try to get through the backlog of emails that Stan gets every day. By the way, there's a, another way for you to reach out anytime. Uh, phone line first to reach Stan and his team, one 821 5900 Then free and anonymous website, Love It Pocket Employment Lawyer. Let's get down to uh, where are we here. Alexis. Alexis has promised. This is an interesting one. I haven't heard this before. Uh, Alexis says the Ontario government website says I have to wait five years before I'm eligible for severance. Is that true? What is she talking about? Uh, well, what she's talking about and what she's conflating really is uh, is the difference between severance under the Employment Standards Act and severance under the common law. And this is, you know, this is one of the problems with these some of these words like notice, severance, pay in lieu of notice. Sometimes they are interchangeable. Like in, when we talk about the common law, they all essentially mean the same thing. It's basically how much money are you going to get as part of your package. When we talk about it in the context of the statute, though, they actually have very specific meanings, and the statute breaks down. A person's entitlements into two essential categories upon termination. You know, you have you're either entitled to notice or termination pay, uh, and that's one week per year up to a maximum of eight weeks. And then, if you have a if have been there for over five years, and if the company has a payroll of over two point five million dollars, then you're entitled to an additional week per year of severance pay. And that's clearly what I think that she's alluding to here when she says, you know, is that right about waiting for five years? And so from a statutory perspective, that is right. But from an actual legal perspective, as you know, as it applies to most people, it doesn't actually apply to them because it doesn't matter. They're all subject to the common law and the common law is almost always going to be more favorable than your minimum statutory entitlements. So, so basically, anybody, if you're an average employee or non-union person, they should just don't worry about all that uh, that language and just worry more about your common law impl- uh, rights and reach out to you because that's really where the money is, right? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Uh-huh. That's uh, that's where well, well, that's certainly the most generous regime for employees, uh, yeah. and that's where their greatest entitlements are. And unfortunately, you know, employers aren't overly generous these days, and sometimes you do have to fight them a little bit to get what you deserve. Help at employmentlawyer.ca. Megan, up next, Stan says, Hey, Stan, I worked for a company for three years before I was on maternity leave for a year. I returned Mm -hmm. January 2020 until being laid off due to COVID in March. I am wondering if the time I was off for for, uh, maternity and now due to COVID count towards my service with the company. I guess maybe looking ahead to if she gets let go or severance, Mm -hmm. so on and so forth. Yeah, I mean, if she's still laid off due to COVID, I I would certainly question the company's intentions in that situation. It's been two years. You know, I don't think there's any real legitimate reasons to continue to lay somebody off for that long. And, you know, hopefully, thankfully, uh, that the idle regulations, which are intended to expire July 3rd, uh, actually do expire this time, take away that sort of black cloud of uncertainty. And at that point, the employer really has no choice. They either have to recall you or it's a deemed termination. 
Um, but in terms of the question that she was specifically asking, what I would tell Megan is that, you know, it doesn't matter if you are physically present uh, that, to count towards your years of service. You're still an employee of the company, even if you're on mat leave, even if you've been laid off. Uh, you're not an active employee. You're, you know, obviously inactive, but your years of service continue to accrue. And, uh, and you know, ultimately, if they did decide to let you go, it would count uh, not only the time you worked there, but also the mat leave and, and the time that you were laid off for. Right, right. If that helps, uh, Megan, hope so. If not, you can always call Stan and his team to uh, clarify for sure. More in-depth conversation, one 821 5,900, moving down to uh, to Liz, my partner's insurance company, denied her stress leave application despite a written note from the doctor declaring she was off uh, or rather unfit to work. Her company now wants her to return, but she's very stressed out and her doctor is against it. What mm-hmm. can she do? Uh, well, she's got a lot of options, really. Uh, your company cannot simply force you to return to work because you didn't qualify for disability leave. Because, and there's a number of reasons for that. First of all, insurance companies don't make money, to be blunt, handing out disability leave to every claim. Mm-hmm. Um, there's strategy involved. There's, you know, they have their actuarial science, and they, they know which ones to fight on, and they know, you know when to sell them and which ones not to fight on. And that's built into their model, frankly. So you know, oftentimes they do reject a claim, especially claims related to mental health issues, which are a lot harder to prove. Um, you know, it's not like you have a physical disability, which everyone can see. Unfortunately, mental health is something that oftentimes is invisible. Uh, and, and I mean, at the end of the day, if your doctor is saying you do not have to go back to work and they put their, they put that in writing on a medical note with their license on the line, because again, whenever a doctor or a lawyer makes a representation, you know, we have insurance backing that up. And, and that means it's a, you know, a formal legal opinion. Uh, if a, you know, if a doctor says you don't have to go back to work, it doesn't matter what disability is saying. You are entitled to listen to your doctor. And, and to go even further than that, John, you are entitled to listen to your doctor, even if your doctor turns out to be wrong. Mm-hmm. Because wow. you're, a, you know, you're a layperson. How, if a doctor, a medical doctor, says something to you, you have absolutely no reason not to believe them. Yeah. And you ha- especially if it's a doctor you trust, you have every reason to, to agree with them and to listen to their recommendations. Again, even if they're wrong, you know, it's not an exact science. Uh, it's a medical opinion. And a layperson is entitled to listen to a professional's medical opinion. Your employer cannot force you back in that situation. And if they do, that is frankly a constructive dismissal. Talk to me a little bit about what what could eventually arise with Liz, and that is, you know, being denied and then, okay, find her off for a while. And uh, because, you know, the, the company has realized that the, the doctor's word is, is final when it comes to these problems. But it is, uh, it is you know, something that, as you say, will not necessarily show up on an MRI or CT scan. That company may start poking around asking about, you know, what's wrong with you, what's, uh, you know, what part of the body. So they may start asking for diagnosis. Now, give me some details about as far as how much leeway your employer has when it comes to asking those types of questions. Well, certainly when it comes to asking for a diagnosis, like what is wrong with you, mm-hmm. the employer cannot ask that question. It's not relevant, frankly. They don't need to know that. They, what they need to know, John, is what are your specific limitations or restrictions to understand if we can bring you back. 
you know, and again, with physical ailments, it tends to be a lot easier, right? We right. person can't lift 30 pounds over their head or whatever. And, you know, and they actually have what's called functional abilities forms that doctors can fill out that have a whole grid of, you know, basically on a scale of one to five, what can they do? Lifting, walking, running, et cetera. Um, but as you know, for mental health issues, there's it's nothing really like that. Uh, and so it becomes very difficult sometimes to accommodate or to try to bring a person back to the office when they're dealing with these mental health issues, because usually the remedy is to just take time off work. It's not there's nothing you can necessarily uh, accommodate them to come back to work when the issue itself is, you know, the work, the the pressure, whatever, the stress, anxiety, whatever is going on in the workplace. Yeah, it's a little confusing, but people, again, uh, you know, listen to your doctor, listen to your medical team, and failing that, you want to listen to Stan if you uh, give him a call or any uh, – we'll get to Jane, I think, before we uh, we take a break. Um, my husband been on LTD for almost two years. Uh, his company will be terminating his extended health care benefits once he has been on LTD for two years. Is that legal? Mm-hmm. Uh I would say it depends on whether they have a policy, frankly, that says they can do that. Yeah. If they have a predetermined policy that says, you know, we, after two years, don't have to continue your benefits, then by definition, it's not discriminatory, right? The policy isn't, isn't being discriminatory to you. It's applied uniformly. You are aware of it. It's not like a new condition that's being introduced. Uh, and in that scenario, yeah, the company can realist. I mean, benefits is, really, John, just another form of payment. So it, uh, the other way to look at this is, does my employer have to keep paying me if I'm not working? And the answer is always going to be no. You know, you don't have to keep paying people if they're not working. That's unfortunate for the individual, but that's why we have disability programs in place, that there are, again, these insurance uh, insurance safety nets to make sure that you know, if a person is injured, they have income coming in, but it's not necessarily at the cost of the employer either. So in, in that sense, I would say that they don't have to necessarily, uh, like they can terminate the benefits. However, if you consider from the other context, even if they have no requirement to do something, but then they choose to do it, uh, they can't then two years later decide to take it away. You know, at some point, it again becomes a term of the employment contract. Uh, it's a mutually agreed upon term through acquiescence. And if they try to take it away, that could be a constructive dismissal. Yeah, it's interesting. Again, these uh, these things and these uh, these matters when it comes to, you know, benefits and long-term disability, that two-year mark is always key. And uh, a little reminder on the side, too, the other half of what the firm does, San Fierro to Mark, and that Stan is part of, of course, is disability law. So these things often uh, dovetail into each other. And there's a lot of crossover between employment and disability. So any other questions, you can always uh, reach out, uh, Jane, for that. Uh, no problem to stand, and he'll set you up with the right person on the other side of the table that uh, that can handle that thing. I'm going to give you that information as well, help at employmentlawyer.ca. Of course, you know that's the email address, but one 855 821 or reach out to the firm. And yes, we are back. Stan Feintelberg is your guy, courtesy Sam Firu to Mark and LLP, the most positively reviewed law firm in the country. You can reach out to Stan anytime, one 821 
5900 simple right help at employmentlawyer.ca and the free website built for you lots of employment law information covers all kinds of categories as well that would be pocketemploymentlawyer.ca you'll find the severance pay calculator there as well over two million people have used that and had their eyes opened up to what severance really should be so that would be your first stop and then reach out to stan and his team Tony up next says, hey, Stan, having had received a recent severance, would I be able to apply for EI without any penalties or clawbacks? Uh, So, Tony, actually, right now, the government has changed the rules around EI until about the end of September of this year. And so for the last two years, anyone who's collected EI could do so with uh, and and get their severance at the same time. Uh, the normal rule is that you cannot double dip that way. You know, you, essentially, EI will determine how much severance you got in, in terms of weeks, and then they will tell you, okay, you are eligible for EI once that runs out. However, right now, Tony, as I said, the rules have changed until September of this year, and you can collect both, uh, and you absolutely should take advantage of that program. So there you go, brother. You want to reach out and uh, further, you probably don't have to, but just in case, again, one 821 5900 Tatha. Tatha is next. My employer refused to give me a raise. Refuse. Can I quit and use constructive dismissal? Something I hear a lot, John, and, and I think there's a lot of misconceptions around raises in particular. Um, you know, Nobody is legally entitled to a raise. Uh, the only you know, entitlement you have in terms of salary from a statutory perspective is the minimum wage. Um, basically, you know, other than that, anything above that is subject to what you can negotiate. Mm. And so if you can negotiate uh, a better raise for yourself, then you should absolutely do it. And that's you know, the problem often is that people don't negotiate. They don't put their self, you know, just don't examine their self-worth properly, don't look at the labor market, and don't use the leverage they have to get that raise that they want. They just expect an employer to give it to them. And in an ideal world, that would be how it would work. If you did a good job, you should get a raise. But employers, just like many of us, don't like to part with their money easily. And if they could avoid giving you a raise, they absolutely will. Uh, so ultimately it's about negotiations. It's about leverage and it's about going and getting what you want and what you're, what you deserve. Yeah. I guess people just assume that, Hey, you get a job and every couple of years, uh, I get a raise. Where's mine sort of thing, right? Yeah. And I mean, a lot of companies kind of have that built into their model already, especially the larger companies where, you know, structurally, as you become more senior, you're always going to expect your income to increase, even if you're staying in the same position. Um, but no, you know, nobody's entitled to that raise ultimately, unless you go and get it. Ike is up next using the email address as everybody is help at employmentlawyer.ca says, Stan, my employer wants to get rid of my annual bonus because they're saying they cannot afford to pay it any longer. This is a huge part of my compensation, about a third, and I cannot afford uh, myself to lose this money. Is there anything I can do about it? Absolutely. Uh, if you're telling me that your employer is going to take away a third of your income, and I don't care what you call it, if you call it commissions, bonus, what have you, it doesn't matter. At the end of the day, it's a third of your income, uh, and that's a pretty clear constructive dismissal. 
even if the company is not doing well, that doesn't give them the right to change the terms of your contract. That's, you know, they're mm. breaching the contract. You can accept that breach. You don't have to act on it. You can, you can choose to acquiesce or accept it, but you can also choose not to and claim constructive dismissal. And that's probably one of the clearer examples of what a construct, constructive dismissal is. Is there a threshold as to how many times or years you've received this bonus where you can count it as a regular part of your income and, and do exactly what you said? Well, you know, it, I think it's less a threshold and more about the facts. You know, every bonus plan I've ever read has said it's discretionary at the discretion of management. Right. Yep. But at the same time, you know, when they call it, they say it's discretionary, but they also lay out specific goals, targets, metrics by which you <laughs> get the bonus. So that doesn't, I mean, in reality, that's not discretionary. You hit a target, you get the bonus. If no one's, they don't choose to give that to you. It's built into the, the model. Uh, even if it were discretionary, though, after a certain period of time, it's going to be determined to have become a term of your employment. You know, if they give you a bonus every year for 10 years, let's say, it's really hard to argue that bonus is discretionary at that point. At some point, you know, it becomes an expectation. Uh, it becomes a, form, a formal part of that, uh, of that person's compensation. And taking it away is just like taking away any other compensation. It's a constructive dismissal. It's the old Clark Griswold, not putting in the swimming pool this year because he didn't get uh, didn't get your bonus. Tamara, you are up next. Says, uh, how do I know if I have been wrongfully terminated and am I entitled to money? Uh, well, you would know if you've been wrongfully terminated if you were terminated, because a wrongful termination from a legal perspective just means that you've been let go and they haven't given you what you're entitled to. At the end of the day, I, you know, I think there's, a, again, a number of misconceptions with this terminology. Wrong, people think that wrongful implies intent, that, you know, somebody did something wrong. Either uh, yeah. Illegally, or I did something, or the employee did something wrong. And that's not really what this means at, at all. A wrongful termination is all, a termination by definition is a breach of contract, right? You know, you have an employment contract, and they're ending that contract, they're breaking the terms of the contract. And therefore, they owe you damages, common law damages, statutory damages, what have you. Uh, that's all a wrongful termination means, that they breached your contract and they haven't given you a fair amount of damages. So what, uh, what is uh, her, the advice, I guess? First thing is to stop by, you know, pocket employment lawyer, check the severance pay calculator, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the easiest way to kind of get a very quick five-minute opinion on what your entitlements may be in general. And it gives you, you know, you can take a quick look, see if how it lines up with the package you're being given, because sometimes employers are generous and they do give you reasonable packages. And we tell, you know, consults that all the time. We're not looking to try try to force uh, cases that really have no merits. We want people, you know, our, our goals are always to ensure that people can have their packages reviewed and to give them legal advice even if you're even if you have a good package we'll tell you that and so you don't have to waste you know any more time stan let's let's just take a sidestep of the email and break down a couple of those terms because i know people they often phone in or email and they want to know the difference like like you said they don't understand difference between a wrongful dismissal which we covered and a constructive dismissal where's the difference well a wrongful dismissal is a termination by fact right like employer is terminating you 
They've told you that you're being let go. A constructive dismissal is a termination, you know, by way of something else, whether that's you know, a reduction in pay, a change in your position, a demotion, uh, what have a toxic environment. Those things we call it constructive dismissal because you know essentially it's, you, it's a construction of uh, of law. These factors make it that you don't have to stay there anymore and are being terminated by you know the toxic environment or whatever changes are taking place. That's the main distinction. Ultimately, one is a termination by way of fact, and a constructive dismissal is frankly a termination by way of law. You know, it has to be determined whether the changes or the toxic environment, what have you, are fundamental enough of a breach to constitute a constructive dismissal. Again, anytime you need to clear out these terms or get some clarification with Stan, you could do so. One eight five five eight two one fifty nine hundred. That may be the route you want to take for more of a lengthy private conversation. Moving on down to uh, to Mikey. Mike says, "Hey Stan, I had an agreement with my boss that if I would go off and get migraine headaches uh, looked at, was off for five weeks. When I came back, he sent me to his other business in another town, which wasn't our original agreement." When I protested, he said it was his business and he could do what he wants. Is that true? Uh, it's certainly not true in that he can do whatever he wants. He can do, you know, management has certain implied authority uh, and they can do certain things. The question here is, again, analyzing it from the perspective of a constructive dismissal. Okay, it changed your location. Well, how far has that changed? Not every change necessarily will amount to a constructive dismissal. You know, it's all about reasonableness. If we're just talking about five minutes down the road, that's not a particularly large burden to place on an individual. If, however, we're talking about a person who used to commute 10 minutes to work and is now being asked to commute an hour and a half to work, that's very likely a constructive dismissal in my view. So I think it's all contextual and you really have to look at what we're talking about here factually, how, what kind of distance, you know, what's the role with the new company? Is it essentially the same role? Is it a completely different role? Yeah. Mike said different town. Again, we don't know kilometers, but a different town. I mean, it might be a fair bit of distance, right? Exactly. I mean, that's what just what we don't know. So it makes it a little difficult to evaluate here. But as I say, you know, from my perspective, if you're being asked to commute an extra hour a day, an extra two hours a day, mm-hmm. I don't think you have to agree to that. I don't know why you know, anyone should be forced against their will to spend two hours a day of their life in traffic if they didn't choose that, if that wasn't the initial terms of right. the agreement. Yeah. Mike, you're going to want to reach out to get more details on that one. Uh, Drill down a little deeper, as they say. Reach out to Stan, one 821 You know the email address. We continue the Employment Law Show, one 821 And the email address we use all show long here and continue to do so, help at employmentlawyer.ca. Ida is up next. Ida says, I was recently terminated but told that I have to stay and work until the end of May, or no, sorry, June. Uh, Do I have to stay at this point as it seems unbearable to me to work for a company that has terminated me already? Yeah, and I completely understand that perspective, Ida. I mean, nobody generally wants to be in a workplace where they know their job is ending. The reality is that the employer, you know, has a right to give you working notice if that's what they choose to do. If that, and there's not entirely 
a ton you can do about that. Um, the, now, that being said, the one thing you can do here is if it really is unbearable and if it's causing you, again, mental health issues, you can talk to your doctor and see if they will provide you with a medical note basically saying you don't have to come into the workplace for some period of time. Um, that will allow you not to have to work this pre- throughout the working notice period, but it, but it doesn't mean that you're not entitled to the pay in lieu of notice during that same period. So you're, you're still entitled to be paid even if you're disabled and unable to work for that period. That would really be the only way to approach this, you know, from a le- legally that would allow you to remove yourself from the workplace. Because outside of that scenario, an employer has a right to give you working notice. And if you decide to just leave, that's abandonment. That's resignation. Shouldn't at uh, also just on the side not assume that that uh, that working notice that that she's been given is enough. She should also use the severance pay calculator because I mean, if it's that that one month. Basically, yep. till the end of June, but she finds out through using the the severance pay calculator on the website, pocketemploymentlawyer.ca, by the way, that she's owed six months. Well, then after the one month, they still have to pay her the remaining balance, correct? So always look always look there as well. Absolutely. And I mean, it, it, to add a little bit even more nuance to it, number one, as I mentioned earlier, working notice is not necessarily counted the same. And, and mm-hmm. so, it, you know, if you're entitled to 10 months and they give you 10 months of working notice, you're likely going to get something extra because, you know, working notice doesn't exactly give you the same time to look for a job that not working notice would provide that person. Uh, so that's always a key consideration. And as I said, even if you go to the pocket employment lawyer or, and, you know, see what your entitlements are, even if they're giving that to you, but they're giving it to you only as working notice, that may not be sufficient. And then the other here, John, is keep in mind that even if they give you 24 months working notice and satisfy every common law entitlement you have, mm-hmm. the company is a severance pay employer. At the end of that 24 months, they still owe you money. Even though you don't have common law damages in that scenario because they've satisfied them, our statute still says you are entitled to severance pay and severance pay can never be provided as working notice. Nice. Always good to reach out, right? one 821 5900 As Stan says, it's often nuanced. And unless you know the uh, the law like the back of your hand, you're not an employment lawyer, you wouldn't do that. So uh, you want to reach out to Stan regardless. Logan, up next. Yep, still got time for Logan. Can I be fired for not following the provincial health orders pertaining to COVID without having signed any contractual obligation to follow said guidelines prior to being threatened? So I think the, the key distinction there, John, is provincial health regulations. Ah, okay. So the employer we're talking about who's introduced a vaccine policy or you know some other type of policy, we're talking about a government-imposed restriction. Mm-hmm. And obviously, if a government tells an employer they have to do it, they have to do it. It's not up to them. Even if they don't want to do it, they have to do it. So in that scenario, you, you don't have really any maneuverability because it's not your employer that's actually doing anything to you. And what we've been, we've seen this a lot actually come up during COVID where, you know, my employer doesn't have a vaccine policy, but the place that I need to go work has a vaccine policy and they won't let me on their work site. Well, unfortunately, you know, we would call that frustration of contract. It's not your employer that's imposed anything upon you. And through essentially neither party's fault, you can't continue because a third party has introduced a policy that prevents you from working. 
Let's get to uh, Tricia. You know, it, it, a day doesn't go by where we get into something when it comes to performance improvement plans. And finally, here's that email that has arrived. Tricia says, Stan, my company just put me on a performance improvement plan, and I completely disagree with this. What can I do to fight this as the issues they have identified are completely made up? <laughs> so if you have, you know, firstly, I tell every client, the f- first thing you want to do is you want to write them an email and rebut whatever they're saying. You know, if they're saying you're deficient, and oftentimes so many of these performance improvement plans, John, are so vague. <sighs> things like professionalism or tone or customer service skills without actually giving you examples of what you've done wrong. So you can call them out on that. You know, you're allowed to rebut what if you disagree with them. What you can't do and what you have to keep in mind is that a PIP is ultimately a subjective view of the company. Doesn't mean that you're deficient doesn't mean that they can terminate you is their subjective opinion. And it's within their authority to impose that on you. If they feel like your work product is deficient. Right. So if they're going to impose a PIP, there's nothing you could do about that. You know, they, unless you can really prove, I suppose that that's being done in bad faith and you can go the constructive dismissal route. And even then I often tell clients, don't do it. You know, it's much if you're worried that this PIP is going to lead to a termination, I, from my perspective as your lawyer, that's a a better case for you. I would rather have them terminate you and fight that case than try to argue that the PIP itself was a constructive dismissal, because I think that's a much more difficult position. And again, a termination is a fact. As soon as you're terminated, you're owed money. Don't have to don't have to get into this question of is it a fundamental breach? You know, what does the law say? It's a fact you're owed money. Get to Ryan here. Again, everybody using help at employmentlawyer.ca. That email, of course, good, uh, not just for the uh, the hour of the show, but any other time you want to reach out to Stan and his team, use that, get some answers. Ryan says, uh, guys, I was told in December that the company made bonus and we would be paid our usual bonus in February. However, I was just let go, and they're refusing to pay me the bonus. Do they have to give me the bonus if I work the entire year for the company? Wow, a long time ago. Yeah. Um, You know, it kind of depends, I would say. Uh, It depends on the terms of the bonus plan. An employer can, with good language in in a contract, disentitle somebody from a bonus after they've been terminated, even if they've worked the full year. If it says something like you have to be employed on the date of payout and employment does not you know, mean that your notice period in this scenario, it means other than the statutory notice period, then that kind of language tends to limit, just like the termination clause, you to statutory entitlements. And if your statutory entitlements don't cover the period, uh, the payout date, then unfortunately you're probably you know, you're probably in, so not going to get that bonus. If there are, if there's no language like that, though, it doesn't, you know, or if there's language that, you know, is less clear, let's say something like, oh, to get the bonus, you have to be actively employed on the date of payout. Well, the Supreme Court's actually said that language is not good enough to disentitle somebody from, the, uh, from a bonus. Uh, and the reasoning is pretty, you know, it makes a lot of sense to me. It's basically, they say that, well, Active, the word active, is essentially determined by the employer here because the employer could give you working notice and then you would be actively employed or they could essentially deny you that opportunity by not giving you the working notice. So they've essentially, you know, the court's view is that active employment 
doesn't matter. It's you're still a nominal employee during the notice period, and if your notice period covers the payout date, you're entitled to the bonus. And that will just about do it for another show. Thank you so much for your contributions on email. Keep them coming. Stan answers them all the time. He's got a crew with him as well. That is help at employmentlawyer.ca. You want to reach out to the website for more information and the severance pay calculator rolled into pocket employmentlawyer.ca. And finally, the phone number. Anytime. Use it. Keep it. one 855 821 We'll talk to you again next edition of Employment Law Show.